State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Ted, I want to ask you a question real quick. Let's just keep it real straight shot with no chaser. I'm going to get a little bit rough. I'm here for those who really believe in the American process. All of us. Straight shot, no chaser. With your girl, Tesla Figaro, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. What's happening, Straight Shooters? This is your girl, Teslin Figaro. Thank you so much for joining us. As you know, uh, I have been following the Derek Chauvin case. I have been connected with the George Floyd family. And right now we are in the middle of, I would say, the case of the century. They once said that O.J. Simpson trial was the most watched case, the case that really brought the most conversation in our lifetime. And I do believe that this case will supersede it. Number one, because we have access on so many different platforms than we had during the O.J. Simpson trial. Number two, because people are, they are a lot more engaged than what they were uh, over 25 years ago, I believe the last year was the 25 year anniversary of the O.J. Simpson trial. And three, this takes the Rodney King uh, issue to another level. But once again, having us deal with seeing a clear misconduct on tape, Rodney King survived, George Floyd died, but really puts us in a position uh, to be able to talk about you know, racial justice and police brutality and misconduct and all of the things that it encompasses. And because of that, because this case literally was talked about across the world, this will be the most watched case. So I have with me joining today Attorney Natalie Jackson, who is a wrongful death and civil rights attorney in Orlando, Florida. And she was also Trayvon Martin's local attorney. She's always been someone that doesn't necessarily go to the spotlight. I'm always trying to push her in the spotlight because, number one, I think she deserves it. She's brilliant. And she really is a fighter for the people. I am so honored to have her, not just because of who she is and her brilliance, but she has been a big sister to me. And a friend, you know, she is the one that I call when I say I'm going to call my attorney. (laughs) 
is is Natalie Jackson. She's the one that if I'm trying to get uh, somebody to help me lobby on something that's important, she's the one that I call. And she's just been the one that I've called, you know, through hard times. And I want to say this before we get into the interview. When I was working uh, in Oklahoma City after I left Orlando, Florida, and the Monroe Bird case happened and Natalie was the one, you know, that connected me, you know, with Ben Crump to make sure that that case was heard. And she also was the one with me that would constantly be saying that the house call victims, you know, deserve to be heard because black women matter, too, uh, because at the time there wasn't a lot of media around black women and uh, police brutality with black women. And so I'm saying that because I want folks to know that there's always people behind the scene that you may not see in the front uh, that is pushing these issues. And in fact, we are on uh, Pam Turner's birthday in Houston, Texas, who was killed and shot and killed by a police officer while she was pregnant. And few people know about that case. So we are still working and building to talk about women. And I just wanted people to know that Natalie Jackson has always been uh, someone that has kept her head down and worked behind the scenes to get things done, whether she gets the credit for it or not. I wanted to give you your flowers today, sis, in front of everybody else. Aw, thank you, sis. <laughs> Let me tell you, I am so proud of you, and I am so glad that I know you and the fabulous person that you are. This podcast, I was so excited to be on it because I knew you and I would really get into it and talk about stuff that other people won't touch. Yeah. So I'm so excited to be here and let's go. Let's go. So I wanted you on Natalie because there's so many different, you know, misinformation, misconceptions, and and also because it's hard, you know, trying to get people to understand rules of evidence and court procedures and motions and what witnesses can say and not say. Because for a lot of people, this is the first time they've ever watched a trial, you know, from beginning to end. Everybody's not like me and you know, watches court TV in my spare time. You know, most people, this is their first interaction, you know, with a case. And I'm excited about that because I, I feel there's so many lessons with this case uh, that we can learn. So take us through, Natalie, and I'm going to... You know, I want you to do more talking than I do. Okay. Well, let me say, before you ask this question, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that I've heard people say, you know, why is it taking so long? This is such an open and shut case. Why are we seeing all these experts and witnesses and people testifying? Why is the prosecution dragging this? I think it is because so many people have not seen a case like this. This is an important case, not only to... George Floyd's family, but to America and specifically black America. So I think the prosecution should put on all the witnesses, should put on all the evidence, should put on everything that they can to show what this case is about. So I'm not really mad at the length of time or the amount of evidence that is being put on, even though I do think a lot of it is repetitious. I think that we need to know that, that this is something that, yeah, this is something that everyone knows should not have been done. And I guess we'll just let the conversation flow naturally because it makes me, you know, respond to why that is so important, especially when we talk about training. Mm -hmm. You know, what we hear in the defund the police movement or reimagine the police, whatever word you want to use, we hear officers need more training, officers need more training. Well, this case shows that he was trained appropriately. Yes. He had substantial training. So this was not a case. And that's why I agree with you. Let's take our time going through this because I want people, uh, as far as the, the trial is concerned, let's take our time going through every witness because there's so many lessons that we can learn outside of this case that we can apply. And that is one, which is it's not always about training. 
It's not always about trying to change somebody's heart. It is about accountability. And so when we look at the fact that he had appropriate training, when we look at the fact that one of his past misconducts was putting a knee on a 14-year-old boy's neck and him being able to have 18 misconducts in a 19-year career and still being able to keep a job, that is where we have to say, okay, what is missing here? So I think it's very easy to say, oh, training, just throw training on it. But what happens, you know, when they've already been trained? Right. And let's go a little further. Not only was he able to keep a job, he was able to train other people. Remember, there were two rookies there that he was training and supervising. So I think that you're absolutely right. You know, when we talk about policies, training, everyone wants to always throw these things out. They have training. They have policies. They have all of this. What they have not, what we have not really approached and what I think this trial is getting very close to is talking about the culture. Mm -hmm. The wall of silence. What is the culture in the police force that allows a man like Derek Chauvin to know he's being filmed, not only by his body camera, by officer's body camera, but by civilians who are upset with him and still not care? Yes, sis. That's so so interesting. You said that because actually in my comments last week. Somebody said they were trying to give the argument that we were saying. They were saying, no, they they have the training or they need more training. And I said, no, what you're talking about is culture. You know, you're talking about what is acceptable. He was saying that they were trained. Let me put it like this. I said that he wasn't trained to put a knee on the neck. That was not in the training policy. Somebody else came in my comments and said, no, he was trained there. We keep trying to tell you all they're trained to do this. And I said, no. Technically, they were not trained to do this, but it is a part of the culture. And that's the difference. So let's let's just make sure we 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 dab into that. What all goes into when you say the 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 culture of it all, meaning no accountability, meaning uh, sidebars on, hey, you know, we're trained to do this, but really you should do this. When the uh, officer McKenzie, I believe her name was the medical coordinator, they use the term superhuman, you know, when they're on drugs. What do you mean when you say the culture of it all when we talk about systematic racism that people don't see in black and white in a manual. Let me give you a perfect example that I think everybody who's ever dealt with police or seen a police on video when you hear stop resisting and a person is not resisting. (laughs) That is a part of police culture. Stop resisting. Stop resisting. Because they want that on video. They want that on the body cams, on on the audio to show that this person was possibly resisting, therefore they had to use force. So, and strangely, that's one of the things that's missing from Derek Chauvin. He never said, stop resisting. He never said, you know, let me get you, let me get you some help or whatever. So I think that that also goes to the culture of what he is used to. He's used to not being questioned. He's used to, if he messes up, and, and I'm, I'm saying this just, I don't know him personally, but the culture of police brotherhood is that if you mess up, I got your back. Mm -hmm. If you if you do something, this is a dangerous job. If you do something, don't worry, we will cover for you. Don't. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to prosecute these cases, because as you can imagine, the people who are investigating these cases are police officers. So. If they fall into that culture and if they believe in that blue wall of silence, then you're going to get reports as we see and as we'll see throughout this trial. You're going to see reports that were done, you know, a year ago and they were done by police officers 
there no there's no audio of it there's usually a transcript that's what we get in these cases a transcript of what was said and done and things may not be actually they're written down but they may not be truthful mm -hmm. and that's one of the problems when you're dealing with police officers one of the things we saw in the Trayvon Martin case i felt was that you even though George Zimmerman was not a police officer the police chief in Seminole County, in Sanford, he was fired because of the actions that happened. So you had a whole group of police officers who felt hurt that he had been fired and they wanted to vindicate him. So you saw them get on the stand and basically they lied. <laughs> they lied. And, and when I say that is because it's so slick and it's so insidious of how they do it. And they're working with the defense. I saw something today that I thought was pretty incredible. Um, the person from the uh, Minneapolis Bureau, Bureau that was investigating Derek Chauvin, he said that Derek Chauvin weighed 140 pounds and was five foot nine. Now, does that really matter in the long run? It doesn't matter so much, but when you think about these cases where you're talking about the weight of Derek Chauvin on George Floyd's back, 140 pounds doesn't seem like a lot to when you say that. However, I'm like, there was no challenge to that. Who reported that he was 140 pounds? I mean, can you imagine how he said he was 5'9 and 140 pounds? Does that even sound right to you? Yeah, no. And, and, and again, if 140 pounds is sitting on my neck... Right. You know, that, that's a totally, I mean, you it's can feel a lot, right? If he was 180 pounds, 140 pounds, which doesn't make sense to me, but regardless of what they're saying, it was still bottom line, you know, on his neck. Right. But there's going to be medical evidence because the, the medical examiner actually said allegedly when he gave this report to the internal affairs people who were investigating Chauvin, initially he, alleg he allegedly said that there was not enough weight on George Floyd to be position, positional asphyxiation. Now, we don't know if he's going to testify to that. One of the things I want to tell your um, listeners is that all everything we've heard in the media, in the press, all of this stuff, is not evidence in the trial. It's not evidence until someone comes in there and testifies to it. So this is he hasn't testified yet as of, as of this recording, but that is one of the things that has been reported, that he said was that there was not enough weight on George Floyd for him to say this was positional asphyxiation. So all of this stuff does matter when it comes down to the jury. And the reason, that's why I say the reason that it matters of how much he weighed, 140. And, and let's take it out of the context of Derek Chauvin's case. Many times in these self-defense cases where they say, you know, there's some self-defense, height and weight matters. That's one of the things that a jury can take into consideration. So here, if you have a medical examiner or a medical expert saying that the amount of weight does matter, then that could be. But then they're going to have to figure out, well, which one is it? Because they also said yesterday that he was on the shoulder blade. So is it the shoulder blade? Is it the neck? Does the weight matter? Does it not matter? The defense seems to be all over the place. You know, was it the drugs? What What is it? So explain to our listeners this grasping for straws technique that, that okay. we're seeing, because I don't think <laughs> people understand so, every day is something different. From a lawyer's perspective, the defense is doing a good job because he has nothing else to go for. So all he's trying to do is throw everything against the wall because he doesn't have to prove anything. Mm -hmm. All he has to do is poke holes into their proof. So 
that's one of the things that I think a lot of people may have a misconception of. When we say that someone has the burden of proof, the only person that has the burden of proof is the prosecutor. And his burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. So as a defense attorney, the only thing I'm trying to do is poke holes in his in his proof to show the jury, hey, you might have some doubt. So that's why it seems, you know, funny to people who are watching it that it seems like he's just making up anything he can. That's his job. Right. And let's also address, because people also don't understand the instructions to the jury when we say reasonable doubt. Because So let's break down what reasonable doubt is, because reasonable doubt can be anything. I can say, oh, well, I doubt it. So explain what that actually means, because reasonable basically means something that makes sense that's doubt. So if you can explain that to to folks on what that means. Well, there's a reasonable standard throughout this case. So everybody needs to understand the reasonable standard. The reasonable standard is not just a reasonable doubt. It's not just, okay, well, you know, maybe a car killed him mm-hmm. or maybe the exhaust from the car killed him while he was down there. Well, there's no evidence to that in this trial. So that would not be a reasonable doubt. That would be an unreasonable doubt. However, if you say, well, maybe the drugs killed him, there's been evidence that there is drugs in this case. So that would that would be a possible reasonable doubt in if you look at it in the context of everything else that is going on. So that is what um, people are saying. However, even I would say that that's not a reasonable doubt here because the prosecution doesn't have to prove that the knee on the back or the pressure on the back was the only thing that killed George Floyd. They have to they have to prove that it's it's substantially. Um, it was a substantial factor in his death. Right. So kind of like when just in layman's terms. So on the death certificate, you can have I remember my my dad's death certificate, you know, had two different reasons. It can be, uh, you know, what was the contributing factor and then what was the actual cause of death? So the actual cause of death can be the heart stop. But the contributing factor could have been a seizure or lung cancer or something that contributes, you know, to the actual death. So. In other words, we know that certainly drugs was involved. Nobody's trying to, as far as in the court of public opinion, is trying to escape that. What we're saying is that was not what contributed. Are you saying the the cause of death would contributed substantially or the most? Is that uh, so? How do how does a uh, a juror let's let's look at how, how does a juror decide? Okay, seventy percent was because of this, or thirty percent was. Because, tell us how a jury has to think through that on what was the substantial cause. So we're watching all these details being played out individually by different witnesses. At the end of this, once the close of evidence is done, then each of the attorneys will get to make what are called closing arguments. During closing arguments, the prosecution is going to say. You've heard evidence of drug use. You've heard evidence of, you know, a possible overdose. Um, and I believe they're going to say he had some sort of um, uh, delirious, like, hallucinations and stuff uh, that caused some sort of adrenaline rush in his body. That hasn't been put on as evidence, but he's um, the defense. He has indicated that that's one of the, the um, causes that he's going to say caused the death of George Floyd. Prosecution is going to say, okay, well, you saw George Floyd, you saw George Floyd minutes before he died. And he was walking, he was talking, he was, you know, doing all these things. And once he went unconscious, he never regained consciousness. And Derek Chauvin, once he went unconscious, he was not a threat to Derek Chauvin. There was no need for force anymore. 
Jared Sterling continued to apply force. He did not render aid. He did not. Um, he did not move George Floyd. He did not do any of this stuff. And so they're going to they're going to bring on their expert that says that he died of a cardiac arrest, which is lack of oxygen. So do you think it's the time it starts the moment he went unconscious or before? Because I know they were going pretty much frame by frame uh, with a lot of the witnesses this week was saying, at what point was he not not resisting? And I know the witness, uh, one of the experts uh, from L.A., the L.A. expert witness that testified to use of force, he went through frame by frame and said, OK, at this point, uh, he was not resisting. And that was before he was conscious. So do you you're saying that you think it will be at the moment uh, that they will go for the safer move to say the moment he was unconscious, he did not render aid. And that's where the intent comes in. Or I think they'll do it frame by frame, just like that. But I'm saying the clear point was when he was unconscious and yet force was still being used on him. At that point, it becomes an assault, which is what you need for murder, too. And that's why I wanted to talk about reasonableness with the police officer. So all these actions are based on the reasonableness of a police officer given the same information that Derek Chauvin had. So it's not the reasonableness of a layperson because obviously police officers have to use force sometimes and they're allowed to use force. You're not allowed to go and just arrest someone and push them down and, you know, put handcuffs on them and do all that. But a police officer can um, get in, in the proper circumstances. So that's why reasonableness, according to what a police officer given the same information in the same situation would do. They're going to say, when I say they, the prosecution is going to say, you've heard police officer after police officer after police officer come on this stand and testify that they believe this was excessive force. And this is not what they would have done. They were not trained to do this. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests. But with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses 
by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. I changed my mind. We definitely won't just be 30, 45 minutes because there's so many questions, you know, that I just want to break down line by line. Let's go back a little bit when you talked about what's reasonable for a police officer. And the reason why I want to talk about that shortly, uh, quickly, is because you worked on a Trayvon Martin case. Now, when we look at George Zimmerman, you know, when you just made the comment about, you know, a police officer can't run and tackle somebody down and handcuff, which is what George Zimmerman did. He felt he had the right to do what he did. So when you worked that case, he was able to say, stand your ground as reasonable. So can you kind of explain if it's possible, the difference between how he was able to on the stand your ground law to make that reasonable. When you just said that it's not reasonable for a everyday person to run down and, you know, fight crime. So, well, let me, let me just say on George Floyd, the stand your ground law was he did not use it. (laughs) Because oh, that's right. He he mentioned it. He put it out in the, in the court of public opinion, but ultimately did not use it. Yeah, break that down because I totally yeah. forgot about that. That's okay, right. Okay, so in George Floyd, the stand your ground law in Florida allows a defendant to have a hearing where the judge can decide whether or not they use lawful force. The reason they can have this hearing on that is so that they don't have to pay for trial and go through the hassle of a trial. So that's an option that a defendant has when they're acute when they're saying that they were acting in self-defense in Florida. That's what Stand Your Ground says. Stand Your Ground says that if you're acting in self-defense, you do not have a duty to retreat. You can stand your ground. So the law allows you to have a hearing on that. Uh, and the reason that they do it is so that people don't have to spend money if they really were acting in self-defense. George Zimmerman opted not to have that hearing. <laughs> he opted not to have that hearing because he was not going to win that hearing. There was no, um, there, there was, he did not have a stand your ground argument there because he approached, he approached Trayvon with a gun. Trayvon had no idea that he was coming. If you listened to the trial, Trayvon had gone between two houses and thought he had gotten rid of George Zimmerman. So in his mind, he's on the phone talking to his friend. He doesn't know George Zimmerman is even coming. George Zimmerman actually attacked him. So that is one of the reasons that he did not believe, and he and his lawyer did not believe they would win a stand your ground hearing. However, stand your ground was in the jury instruction, which many people thought was a mistake that 
was made by the prosecution to allow that and not fight harder to get that out of the jury instruction. Even so, self-defense says that you can defend yourself if you are being threatened with deadly force. And so that's what George, George Zimmerman said, that he was being threatened by deadly force of Trayvon Martin. And I so jury- ultimately they did use stand your ground. You're just saying he did not legally use that as a defense, but because it wasn't the instructions, it's what basically right. got him off. Right. Well, one okay. of the jurors said that one of the jurors, the juror that um, ended up giving interviews on CNN, she said that she believed that George Zimmerman was standing his ground. Now, that's why many people thought that that played a played a part in his being vindicated. However, I I personally don't think that I think that she had heard that somewhere and kind of had her mind made up before she came into court. That's just my personal opinion. I don't know. I don't believe that there was any evidence to support that. I don't believe there was any evidence to um, support George Zimmerman being not found not guilty. However, just like in this George Floyd case, if a jury comes back with not guilty, there is it's over. There is no appeal. There is no the only person that can appeal is if he's found guilty, he can appeal. So prosecution will not have a chance to appeal anything if he's found not guilty. So jurors have a lot of latitude in these cases. And, you know, depending, this is where personalities come in as opposed to evidence. Um, You have stealth jurors on a jury sometimes. Many people thought that juror in the Trayvon Martin case was a stealth juror because she had written a book. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that because uh, let's get into the jurors uh, with the George Floyd case, because I hear what you're saying as an attorney saying, no, there wasn't evidence for that. But in the layperson's mind, because it was in the instructions and it gave her a way out, probably to do what she already planned to do. We can say reasonably, using that term, that it possibly might have affected her decision. You're saying, no, there was no evidence to it, which I agree, but it gave her an out because the prosecution made that mistake. And that's what defense attorney Nelson is doing. He's trying to give jurors who want an out an out by drugs, by the knee is not really on his neck, it's on his back, by um, all these things that he's throwing against the wall. So that's what these are. These are these are out that he's trying to get the jury. Now, if you want to talk about the jury, the jury consists of right now nine women and five men. There were 15 jurors selected. One of them was dismissed as an alternate juror. There are 12 jurors in this case. So we have two alternates that won't be in deliberation. They're going to hear the whole case but they won't be in deliberation. So, you know, we don't, I don't know who those two alternates are. The judge knows already, but so did the prosecution and defense. I just don't know who they are. So when we talk about the jurors, you know, they classify six as quote unquote minority. I have a concern with that because uh, they, I believe two are classified as multi, uh, multi-race or multi-ethnic. And, and I don't understand what that means. I understand that it is totally okay to, you know, claim both ancestries, you know, to have a an understanding of two different cultures. How do we know, you know, that these multiracial jurors have the lens that we see? And I also want to say there's no, uh, because somebody's black, that means you see the things I do. You know, let's be clear about that. Uh, matter of fact, there is a uh, one of the jurors uh, that immigrated from Africa that said he doesn't believe that police, you know, give uh, black people a hard time. So this is certainly not just saying because you have brown skin, you know, that, that we all agree. But what are your thoughts on jury makeup and how significant 
you know, that that plays a role. And how do we really know what their background is? Because to be honest with you, Natalie, you know, a lot of these white jurors that said, oh, I never saw the tape or I'm just totally clueless. I just don't believe that. I believe that the 20 year old or the young guy that says he's never saw it. Most young people on social media is pretty much damn near impossible not to see it. He said he didn't see it in its entirety, but you are familiar with it. I think that's one of those jurors that, hey, I want to get on. I want to be on the, the trial of the century and I want to write a book. We've always talked about how black people need to be educated on how to be jurors. You know, uh, when we come in, we're very truthful and say, yeah, I'm biased. I don't like the police. I don't like anything about the police. I know that I couldn't be fair. And so that gets us removed from the process. So can you talk about a little bit about how important it is that we serve uh, in jury duty and not run away from it because of our own personal uh, you know, choice and not understanding the responsibility, you know, that you have as a juror and how we need, you know, more black people to step up to that. So there's a whole industry called jury consultants and they will tell you that, you know, you have to look a lot deeper than just someone's skin color or their age to find out what they really think and feel. That's why we have something called voir dire, where you're able to ask where the defense attorneys and the prosecutors before a trial on the state level are able to ask the jury questions to try to find out if they're going to be fair jurors, if they're not going to be biased. So this is a this is a time in educating jurors in your audience, potential jurors, this is the time where you get to show, I can listen to the evidence and I can be fair in this case. If you do not show that, you will not be picked for a jury. So you must, those are the key words. If you want to be on a juror, jury. And if you really are, you can be fair, listen to the evidence and decide this case based on the evidence in trial. So I could have seen the video outside of trial, but the court requires me to only listen to the evidence that was presented in trial. Right now, as you can imagine, okay, that's the, that is the pure, you know, utopian legal world. Right. It, it don't happen. It don't go down. That's like, right. Everybody right. brings some type of level of bias, you know, because you're still human beings. But it's a matter of how we're answering the questions. Right. And I and think so that's important. Many times we have to, as attorneys, we have to like really look at our questions and like really get into those issues or whatever and try to, you know, I, I bring up race and jury selection. A lot of people won't do that. They say you shouldn't. I bring it up. I want to know. Who's getting agitated when we talk about this? Who's thinking I'm just over, you know, I'm just going being this civil rights attorney and they're sick of hearing me talk about it. I need to know that because if you're sick of hearing me talk about it, then I might think you have some thoughts about my type of cases because I do civil rights cases. Mm -hmm. So that being said, every demographic is different. This is one of the reasons I would tell everyone who's maybe going to trial is to Get someone who understands the demographic in your area. So it's my understanding that Minneapolis is a very mixed race. There are a lot of mixed race couples in Minneapolis. So they have a lot of biracial children in Minneapolis. So that's my understanding. That's not the case so much where I live. So I would need someone, if I'm going to do a case there, I would be negligent in my job if I didn't talk to someone who knew about the demographics, specifically just in that city. So that I will know what jurors think and what their makeup are. Obviously, if you're a mixed race, you know, you might have some more liberal views about Black Lives Matter than if you grew up, you know, with nobody in a very conservative white household. 
those are things that you or have if to- you grew up in Chicago, you know, where it's very segregated and right. south side of Chicago is black on black on black. You know, I saw very few, you know, interracial couples opposed to living in Orlando where I saw a whole bunch, you know, whole right. bunch of brothers with white women. So, yeah, that the demographics matter. And, and, and knowing about not just the demographics, you want to know about the social the social aspect of that community. You know, is it a poor community? Is it all these things matter when we're talking about just uh, generalities in jury selection? You want to get someone who identifies with the person that you're trying to represent. Mm -hmm. So identity is very important. If I have nothing else, if I know nothing else about someone and I have a young black male on trial, my ideal juror is a young black juror, a young black male, you know, as a juror. So those are my ideas. So that's just the basic bottom line of just identity. However, jury selection goes way further than identity. And, and, and you know, just to kind of go back to say, I don't know why the article pointed out, you know, that the guy was from Africa and I'm not against him being, you know, from another country. But it does show that when you come from different places, your experience might be different, you know, than the American experience. If you come from a country that necessarily did not have to deal with the different levels of racism that we had. I think racism is everywhere. But your mindset on how you view those things that have been passed down from generation after generation generation, you know, after generation with our grandparents and so forth, a lot of those uh, ideas and pain and even resentment, you know, follows us throughout, you know, our lineage versus somebody else that maybe was born black, but maybe they're British, you know, maybe they, maybe their last several generations didn't go through Jim Crow or sharecropping or, you know, so, so I found that to be interesting and I'm, I'm just bringing it up because an article brought it up. So when they brought it up, I said, okay, they're making this interesting point for a reason. So yeah, it is interesting. I think in looking at this Chauvin jury, actually one of the things that's really interesting of a person who got on the jury is a nurse which I think is more important than skin color here because the whole case boils down to causation and it's a medical issue. And they put a nurse on this jury. Obviously, she's going to have a lot of sway with what her fellow jurors think when she's talking. Normally, when you're doing a trial like this, you would not put someone who has medical experience because one, you don't know which way they're leaning. And yeah, because she could go both ways. She could say it was the drugs or she could lean heavy into you should have rendered first aid. Depends and on what kind of nurse. And she's an expert that's being put back there. And I actually think she was a cardiac nurse, if I remember correctly, oh, which wow. makes it even worse. And I, I wonder why she, how she made it on that jury. Now, one other thing that your listeners need to know is that jury selection, you don't just get to pick who you want on the jury. They bring in a group of jurors and you have what are called preemptive challenges and for cause challenges. Most of the time you have a limited number of preemptory challenges. Preemptory challenges are challenges where you can disqualify somebody just because you want to, because they said something you feel you don't like and they're not with the, with the case. Of course, you can't do it based on race or gender or anything that it would be discriminatory, but anything that they say. So at a certain point, you run out of those. <laughs> if you don't have any cause challenges, then the next jurors are on your jury and you have no say whether or not they're on the jury. So she may have gotten on that way. So it's really jury selection is a very complicated process. Um, it's not as simple as just, you know, getting the people that you want. Sometimes you have to compromise and you have to say, okay, well, that person's not as bad. Mm -hmm. so that can eliminate this person. So I'll take this not as bad person so that I can eliminate this person. And 
because you only have a certain amount of people that you can eliminate. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Let's go into the charges and and what those charges mean, why it was so important that attorney Keith Ellison was able to charge this defendant. And, and I tell people this, all of this matters. You know, who you elect for attorney general matters. When people say, oh, politics doesn't matter, doesn't affect me. Oh, yeah, it does. Who's elected as your DA? Who's elected as your attorney general? The police chief is normally a hired position, but the sheriff position is an elected position. All of these things we have uh, an opportunity to participate in. I don't know if we'll have enough time to get into, into the police chief, but I definitely want to have you back with that because it's not too many police chiefs that can sue of the Department for Racism and then come back and be promoted. And I want to talk about that. So where we are now, let break down these charges uh, and, and why it was so important to throw everything in the toolbox for the jury and, and what each one means. Okay, so I, I want to talk about the murder three, which is the third degree murder charge, because I think you've touched on that already. So the murder three charge says that in order for the prosecution to prevail, they have to prove that Shaven caused the death of George Floyd by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to George Floyd and evidenced by a depraved mind without regard for his human life. The reason that this is important is because this judge initially would not allow that charge to be brought. And this judge would not allow, he dismissed this, this, cause, this charge because the statute says that Shaven had to have been had have an act imminent dangerous to others. The judge interpreted that 
as imminently dangerous to others besides George Floyd. So others was not just one person. He, he interpreted that as imminent dangerous to other people, not George Floyd. This is why it's important to have the, the attorney general, the black attorney general. He appealed that decision. They appealed the process. Well, the prosecution appealed that decision of the judge. It went up on appeal. There had just been a case that addressed this very same issue. And the case was, it was actually the Philando Castile case that addressed this very same issue. And the appellate court said, no, others could be one person. It could be George Floyd. It didn't have to be two people or someone other than George Floyd. So that's how we're able to get the murder three charge. Initially, it was just a second degree murder and manslaughter charge. So, and the reason that that is important, it gives the jury three bites at the apple now. So I'll go down all the charges. Okay. So the highest charge is the second degree murder charge. The second degree murder charge says that Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd while committing a felony. There doesn't have to be an intent to um, that he intended to kill him. None of these charges have an intent. So, so none, none are connected with intent because we keep hearing a lot of that about intent, 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 and none of them are connected to intent. Okay. Right. He doesn't have to have meant to kill George Floyd. Okay. So on any of these three charges. And that's important too. Very so, important. So what that says, this is, this is called felony murder. So this is saying that in the commission of a felony, someone died at your hands, basically. The reason that this is important is because all the juries on the fr- jurors on the first week they talked about whether or not this was excessive force that Derek Chauvin did. And that's why it was important that after George Floyd stopped resisting, Derek Chauvin continued to use force against him. That is an assault. Which is the felony. That is the felony. Okay. The assault against George Floyd. So now. And that's look- why the, not to interrupt you, but that's why the prosecution is leaning in on how long he continued to have his knee on his neck after right. he stopped resisting. Right. Because the case law, the Supreme Court case of Connor v. Graham, which you've heard throughout this, says that in measuring whether or not force is excessive, you look at one, the initial crime, which here was a $20 bill, a fake $20 bill, which he could have given him a ticket for to come to court. You look at whether or not the person was resisting and whether or not the person was a danger to himself, I mean, to others around them. So here, what we clearly saw, and that's why it's important that he was not resisting. And that's why the clear line of him being unconscious, but force still being on him, there should never, there's no reason for force. And that was the testimony that there was no reason for force once he's unconscious. So if you're using force on him, now you have gone across the line and committed a crime at that point, which is a felony. And that goes up to how many years? He can get up to 40 years for that. For second degree murder. Okay. And then I read that the standard, I believe, was 10 to 15. Yes, that's the standard correct. In Minnesota. So, and, and so people understand that, that even though you can go from here to 40, it's typically sentenced based upon the standard for that state, correct? And based upon the, the defendant, because at the sentencing, they're going to look to see if he ever committed crimes before um, his people who will come and testify for him. So that's sentencing hearing. Right. Normally, here he's a police officer. We know he doesn't have any criminal record. We know that he doesn't have that, so he would probably get the minimum sentence in this case. Which you think may be 10 years on the second if, degree. If he's convicted on second degree murder. And 
as a side note, too bad it didn't work out like that with mandatory minimum for black folks, but we'll say that another time. <laughs> you know, right. none so of that we mattered. Can, we talk about that. Yeah, we should have said we, we got the time period. Didn't matter what you did before, whatever. We'll say that another time. So let's just say, you know, 10 years felony. So that would be day by day. Or well, would that I be would state? Say probably 15, 15. 15. Okay. Yes. So 15 years, which you'll end up doing about what? Um, I don't know how. Every state is different as far as their game time and what, you know, how much people will accumulate. So I can't tell you that. Okay. 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 So the second degree. Okay. So what's the next so charge? Now, now and, the- and let me ask you this. Can they stack these charges uh, or, um, or does it have to be one or the other? No, they, it has to be one of the other because second degree manslaughter is a negligence charge. So we'll get, we'll get to that. Let's go to the second one, which we already kind of talked about third degree murder. So that's saying that, once again, shaving cause of death. He doesn't have to be intent. There has, doesn't have to be an intent to cause cause the death, but he caused the death, and he did it by perpetuating an act eminently dangerous and evidencing a depraved mind, saying that he had no regard for human life. And that's, so that's the easiest charge. That's second degree. And would you say that's the easiest charge? The- I would say. No, manslaughter. Manslaughter. Okay, so second, I'm sorry, we're on second degree. Okay, because I know manslaughter is also no regard for life. Okay, so go ahead. So second degree, okay. So once again, he had to have caused the death of George Floyd. Now, he doesn't have to have committed a murder. I mean, he doesn't have to have committed a felony like you had to in second degree manslaughter. All he had, all they have to do is show that he did an act that was dangerous and he did it because basically he evil. He got a depraved heart, basically. You didn't care for human life. So they've got to show some evil intent there. Okay. And this one is, is this one the max sentence up to 25 years? This is, yes, up to 25 years. Okay. So my little homework is right. Okay. You got it. I got it. Okay. So, so we got second degree, which is the highest charge. That is commit, just to recap for the listeners, that is with a felony. You have to prove that he did an fel- a felony, which would be the assault, which means it would have to be shown that he committed an assault, which is a felony. And that is what caused the death. Intent does not matter on any of these. I'm, I keep reiterating that because there's been a lot of conversation about intent. And I think people think that one of these charges are connected to intent. And this is up to 40 years, but the state is usually anywhere from 10 to 15 and based upon his record, probably leaning towards 10. And then we have the second degree, no felony required, which makes it a little bit easier, but all he needed to do was show he was dangerous and he basically, you know, no intent again and just did it because, hey, he's just a bad person. That's well, because he had no regard for no the regard. human life of George Floyd. No regard to human life. And that is up to 25 years. And do we know what the uh, the standard is on that one? I, I've read that it's probably 12.6 years that they would get, that he would get on that. That's why I say for the second degree, probably 15. And on this one, 12.6. Okay, got it. Okay. Okay. And, and then so the, the third. Yeah. So let, and one more thing about third degree murder. You keep it. This is where you'll hear people say things like depraved heart, depraved mind. So you'll hear that at commentators talking about that. That's what you have to evidence. That Coming on the second degree? On second, second on third degree. degree murder, third degree murder. We're switching. We're going to felony. Remember? Okay. Second degree, a felony. Third degree, he had to have a depraved heart. So we're going back to third degree. I know you started with third, but 
just so the listeners understand, now we're going back to third degree. Okay, depart. So explain just third degree again, since we just went in order. I know you explained it in the beginning, but okay. So mm-hmm. third degree murder is Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd by perpetuating an act eminently dangerous to George Floyd and evidencing a depraved mind without regards for human life. Okay. So then the last one is second degree manslaughter. So this is the charge where if a jury says, you know what? I think it was an accident. I think that he didn't mean to do this. This is where they can get him. So this says Chauvin caused George Floyd's death by culpable negligence where he created an unreasonable risk and consciously took the chance of causing death or great bodily harm. So this is where all those people who might think, okay, well, you know what? This is just an unfortunate accident. Kind of like a drunk driving accident, accident, basically. Yeah, like he didn't, he caused the death, but he was, he didn't mean to because he was distracted by the crowd, as the defense wants you to say. Or he was, you know, he caused the death, but he didn't mean to because he didn't know how long he was on the neck because he was so, you know, tunnel focused or whatever. He caused the death, but he didn't think he was going to die because the ambulance was coming, you know, and he thought that it was going to. So this is for those people so that they can't just say, okay, well, he's out, you know, not guilty. This charge says, okay, well, if you believe he caused the death, did he do something that was unreasonable? You've heard officer after officer say that standing, continuing to stay on his neck after he was unconscious was unreasonable. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I know there's been critics that say, oh, why did they why did they give him a manslaughter charge? They're helping him get off. But the reality is, had Keith Ellison not given that as an option, there was nothing on the table for that juror that that wants desperately to get him off. This loops you in that you have to give him something, correct? Right. Before that juror who says, you know what? I, I just don't think many times when people hear murder, they think there has to be some intent. Like you just said, there has to be some premeditation or some intent to kill somebody. So this is what that juror said. No, I just think that this was just an unfortunate, tragic event. <laughs> so this is the charge for them because you cannot create an unfortunate, tragic event, which is what George, what Derek Chauvin did in this case, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, you cannot. I, I also, I actually believe they have enough for second degree murder. Now, um, before because, before we skip to that, how many years on the manslaughter? Manslaughter up to 10 years. Okay. So he would probably get three to four years. Oh, wow. That's at the very least. Okay. You said you believe that it's enough for the highest charge? I will say from what I know, I don't think that there's been enough evidence in the case yet to the jury. But from what I know about the medical examiner and what I know about the medical records, I think there will be by the, you know, by the end of this case. From what you did have the emergency doctor, he testified that there was no pulse. He also testified that um, George Floyd died of cardiac arrest, which was a lack of oxygen. And he felt it was most probable not because of, you know, any. he said, yes, drugs can cause cardiac arrest, but probably not in this case. You know, he was like the most probable cause was the lack of oxygen that George Floyd got. And he didn't he wasn't allowed. I don't think he was allowed to give an opinion on whether or not the what Chauvin did cause the lack of oxygen. No, he did mm-hmm. Certainly the medical examiner will be able to, and I'm guessing that they would have another doctor 
that's going to come and talk about it too. Okay. So you believe that once it's all said and done, the second degree, the highest charge, which is committing a felony up to 40 years, possibly we get 10 to 15 is, is definitely reasonable. But if not, the next one would be. Yes, that's third degree murder. So there's a second degree murder, a third degree murder and a second degree manslaughter. Okay, got it. I think that a jury will be deciding between second degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Because I feel that if a jury can get third degree murder, which is showing cause of death of George Floyd, one cause of death of George Floyd by perpetuating an imminent dangerous act to George Floyd and evincing a depraved mind. I think if you get to that, you might as well give the second. Right, right. Because all the felony is, is that he committed excessive force against George Floyd. Gotcha. But just in case it's still right. there. And the reason we do that is because as lawyers, and I know we're running out of time, but I want to explain this because it's really important. The reason that we do that as lawyers in a trial, we try to get as many, um, our prosecutors try to get as many um, charges as they can, because this way jurors can compromise when they're talking. If you have a juror who's adamant and there's, he's just one or two that are adamant that, that Chauvin did nothing, you know, or whatever. Mm You have 10 jurors saying he committed second degree murder. They might say, okay, well, would you compromise to third degree Mm -hmm. or would you compromise to manslaughter? Mm -hmm. So that's why we call that splitting the baby. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what jurors do. If someone's, if someone's adamant Um, in this case, you know, if you ask me for a guess on this case, I would guess that if you have, I would guess that, it would be unanimous or the adamant person might. Well, I don't even want to guess, but I will say what can happen yeah. <laughs> is that in this case, he could be convicted. He can be acquitted or there can be a hung jury. Mm-hmm. A hung jury is a jury that cannot decide if there's a hung jury. What normally happens is you have to retry the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is a great stopping point. Like I said, I want to have you back. I wanted to discuss so much in this hour and we've already went past that. But when you come back, we've covered jury selection. We've covered what the charges are. And then if we can have you come back to talk about uh, a number of things that I know people were concerned about. Uh, Rule 404 that you and I had a discussion offline about, which is what uh, his past misconduct and how that will be admissible versus what will be admitted. I definitely want you to talk about that. I also want to talk about a lot of the things, uh, the hypotheticals that they hear a lot. People, you know, don't understand why are so many hypotheticals being used instead of the actual, you know, what actually happened. So if you can come back to explain that. I also want to talk about you know, these experts, what's considered an expert witness versus not an expert witness. And uh, the blue wall that was clearly shattered in some instances. But we've seen this week where I believe the medical coordinator is trying her best to glue back that blue wall <laughs> because I don't know who she's working for, the defense or the prosecution. So that's important. That's how I because, feel about a lot of these witnesses. Yeah, it's, it, but at first, the chief was like, hey, this is it. So if, if you can come back and talk about that. And then lastly, the bigger picture on what we can learn from this. And that might be better to have once it's all over. You know, so we can really look at all of that. So maybe we can have you come back for part two and, you know, possibly a part three to wrap it all up because your knowledge is so important. Um, Attorney Jackson, I'm so helpful. You know, I'm so grateful that you stopped by because 
You just your wealth of information and you explain it in a way that people can understand and they need this because we're always about educating. Before I get out of here, uh, let people know where they can follow you on Twitter, uh, your website and, you know, Facebook, because you're very active, you know, with uh, participating with folks. You get on Clubhouse to have these conversations. I mean, you're very open to that. So if you can let people know where to find you. I can so on Twitter, I'm Nat Jack Tweets, N-A-T-J-A-C-K Tweets. On Facebook, I'm Natalie Jackson. My website is www.nataliejacksonlaw.com. Um, I am on Clubhouse sometimes, but you'll just have to catch me when I'm on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the meantime, you guys can find Attorney Natalie Jackson. She's been on CNN lately, MSNBC, Court TV. I mean, just making the rounds. Roland Martin shows. She's just been all over the place because and there's... Now Straight shot, no chaser. That's right. (laughs) The one that really matters. (laughs) Not that it's a competition, but (laughs) but yeah. I love my girl Tess. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And let me say again, you don't just say that with words, you say it in action. And there's very few people, you know, that I've met in life that does that. So I am so eternally grateful for you and all of the information that you have shared with us today. And we will have you back for part two, you know, to the finish discussing this. I think this is worth, you know, having this discussion as this trial goes on. Um, you know, to yeah, to give an opportunity so people can really learn. So, guys, make sure you check in uh, again on next week or whenever I can get Attorney Natalie Jackson back on. Just know that there will be a part two. Uh, we're looking for this case to wrap up at the end of the month. They said we should have a verdict at the last week of, of April if everything goes the way that it should. So look again for Attorney Natalie Jackson so we can continue to have this dialogue. And if there is an episode that is worth sharing, it is really this one. It is so hard getting out information to the masses. So please get this information out. Share it. Make sure folks understand and send me your questions. Uh, you can certainly always inbox me on Instagram. Uh, Teslin Figaro to let me know if there's something that I'm missing um, that I can go on. And more than likely, Natalie, I also mentioned this to you. I would love for you to come on my Instagram live, you know, because a lot of times everybody may not catch the podcast. And so let's set that up, too. So look for that uh, alert uh, with Natalie and I on Instagram live so we can continue to give you guys uh, this education, this free game that is so impactful, not only to us as a culture, as a movement, as black people, but could very well be impactful to you if something were to ever happen to you or your family. God forbid. All right, guys, thank you so much. Tune in next week. This is Tesla Figaro Straight Shot No Chase. If you like what you heard on Straight Shot No Chaser, please subscribe and drop a five-star review and tell a friend. Straight Shot No Chaser is a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. I'm Tesla Figaro, and I'd like to thank our producer, editor, mixer, the one and only Marcy DePina, our mix master, Dwayne Crawford, and our executive producer, Charlemagne Tha God. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help with funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, 
keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.